Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Thalipan Naren and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about harm reduction. And harm reduction, in a nutshell, is any intervention which minimizes harm to a patient, others, or society. So when we're talking about injecting drug use, and in particular when we're talking about heroin use, the interventions that we commonly refer to as harm reduction and things that reduce patients' chances of death are opioid substitution therapy, the takeaway regimen with regards to opioid substitution therapy, overdose advice and naloxone, and the management of comorbidities. Now, Fergal, do you think that's a rough very rough overview of some of the harm reduction strategies we think of mainly when we're talking about heroin and opioid misuse? Yeah, it's, that, that's, a, that's a very good overview of, of what harm reduction means. And I think it's important to understand, and, and you've rightly brought this out, that it's not just about reducing harm to the patient, but it's reducing harm to everyone. And the second thing to, to understand is it, it is not a laissez-faire facilitation of ongoing drug use. Just because uh, from a harm reduction point of view, we don't emphasize abstinence does not mean that we don't care for our patients, does not mean that we don't care for society. It's simply acknowledging, look, drugs are going to be taken anyway. So let's minimize the negative effects to everyone, including patients and others and society. Uh, and so that then allows us to, to engage in the economic arguments for harm reduction, which I'm sure we're going to go into in a moment, in terms of the benefits for everyone. But yeah, it's a, it's a good definition and it's a good starting point as to you know, teasing out what these elements are. Absolutely. And I think the points that you raised are quite valid. A lot of the time, some medical practitioners aren't quite aware of what harm reduction means and they throw that term around loosely and that's sometimes used as an excuse or rationale for prescribing medications in combination with other medications which increase the harm. But this is uh, thought of as a harm reduction strategy, such as, for example, with someone who is injecting heroin, giving them benzodiazepines as a quote-unquote harm reduction measure where there's no clear rationale for benzodiazepine prescribing. So it's very important to be clear about what we're trying to do. We are trying to reduce harm. It's not an excuse for being laissez-faire in our prescribing, and we still have to act in an ethical manner in the terms of how we treat our patients and also to ensure that we do actually reduce harm rather than increase harm. Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, and we're talking in the context of opioid replacement therapy. So what, I mean, you know, opioid replacement therapy in and of itself can be seen as a harm reduction intervention, especially if we're moving away from the focus on abstinence. And I think it's important to understand that abstinence for, for people with heroin use disorder, especially treated with methadone, is not, is not necessarily the, the, the end point. So what, what would you say to, to that I think that's a very good point to make. For some patients, abstinence may be achievable, and that's a goal that should be uh, supported and we should try and assist our patient in achieving their goals. For a lot of patients, abstinence is not going to be feasible, and sometimes the pursuit of abstinence can be dangerous. We do know that 
over time, patients build up a tolerance to, to substances. And sometimes when there's a, a long period of abstinence and a, a relapse to, to heroin use, for example, the risk of overdose increases. Whereas if we have a patient maintained instability on opioid substitution therapy and there's no uh, heroin use or other opioid use that's being uh, utilized um, in conjunction with opioid substitution therapy, we know that their risk of dying of overdose is very small. So by and of itself, abstinence may not be uh, the be-all and end-all. And we do know that opioid substitution therapy, A, keeps people in treatment, B, decreases the risk of overdose, and C, provides a portal for patients to access general medical care, which is the goal of treating someone as a, as a whole person. Do you think that's a, a fair statement to make, Fergal? Absolutely, Philippe. And it also introduces the idea that once you've got people engaged in services, you can then start addressing comorbidities. So you can start looking at things like the risk of bloodborne virus transmission. Uh, you can also start looking at, you know, body care, vein care, you know, all the other comorbidities that are associated with heroin use disorder, you can start treating that. And that reduces harm to the patient. But, you know, methadone per se also is, is known to reduce death, not just from overdose, but it also reduces death from suicide and from poly, and from trauma. So again, that's another benefit to the patient. Benefits to others. Well, if you reduce injecting use because you're on methadone, and you reduce the transmission of bloodborne viruses. And if you're on methadone and you don't need to uh, pay for your for your heroin because it, you know you don't need it anymore, well then that reduces the criminality. So which 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 then benefits everyone. Um, so in terms of you, you also went you also touched on the risk of overdose. I mean, I think it's really important to understand. What are the high risk periods for methadone uh, in terms of overdose advice? Because it's you know we know that methadone's advantageous, but you know it's also got its problems. What would you say to that? The greatest risk of overdose with methadone is at the initiation of treatment, usually within the first few days of treatment, but usually thought to be within the first two weeks of treatment. So, as we've discussed in previous episodes of, of cracking addiction, uh, especially with methadone it's important not to start on too high a dose and it's important not to up titrate the dose of methadone in too short a time period. Uh, a lot of people can feel the need for, especially when you're dealing with a patient who has a significant usage of heroin, to try and make sure that they're on a, a quote-unquote sufficient dose and sometimes some people bend rules. But there's a reason rules and guidelines are in place and there is significant risk, especially with the long half-life of methadone, of causing significant harm, including respiratory depression and death. So when we're initiating opioid substitution therapy, um, there is a very significant time of overdose. Yeah. And yeah. Fergal, you mentioned overdose advice as well. Are there any other things that you would talk about with regards to, to, to overdose advice for, for patients from a harm reduction point of view? Specifically with regards to, you know, initiating methadone or for being on methadone, and I suppose also for, for using heroin, I think it's important for people to be taught the signs of overdose. I think people should be taught that they should never let their friends sleep off a heroin, uh, an episode of heroin use. If you see someone who's sleepy having taken heroin or someone who's snoring having taken heroin, 
you need to phone triple zero. And I think it's important to understand that certainly within the Australian context that the police do not get involved with triple zero calls to heroin overdoses. It's treated purely as a, as a, as a medical issue. But so it's so important. It's so vital to actually call triple zero and make that call. People have been successfully prosecuted for not making the call. That's the important point to make. If you're with someone and they're, they're turning blue or they're sleeping it off and you don't know what to do, you have to phone triple zero. The next issue then is, you know, you can actually start educating people on, on, the, on managing uh, basic pulmonary, uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. You can teach people how to do CPR. And then you can teach people how to do uh, various antidotes such as naloxone, which we'll get into in, in, in the next episode, presumably. So the, the advice to patients in terms is still part of harm reduction, and that is the recognition of an overdose and the immediate management of an overdose, including triple zero. So what are the signs of, a, of an overdose, Philippin? So the classic signs that we think of with, with an overdose are people who are drowsy, nodding off, unrousable, some signs of snoring, which can be signs of airway obstruction, decreased breathing rate, so shallow breaths and breathing at really long intervals between breaths, and also when people are getting cyanosed or blue, so blue lips uh, as well. So people who are basically unrousable and not responding to stimuli are people who are at high risk of overdose and those are the usual signs of overdose in particular respiratory depression or people who are not breathing at a rate that we would consider normal and who are having shallow breaths quite spaced apart that is of great concern and especially if you add in quote-unquote snoring which is usually signs of airway obstruction this is someone who is going to die soon unless we do something yeah yeah and what can people do when they see someone who's blue or snoring so going back to, to basic principles and harm reduction step 101, call triple zero. So always call, yeah. call triple zero, get, get some help. And if you know some basic first aid, such as basic airway maneuvers, like a, a, a jaw thrust or a chin lift, those would be the simple things that we could do. And we've talked or we are going to talk about naloxone, which is a, a reversal agent in another episode because it is a big topic that dis that deserves its own episode, but there are medications and strategies that we can use to try and reverse the effects. But if we're talking about what a simple bystander can do, if nothing else, triple zero and render basic first aid and call for help. Those would be the main things that I would do as, as a starting point. Absolutely. Now, Fergal... So one of the other harm reduction measures that we sometimes think about uh, with regards to, to opioid substitution therapy in particular is the, the takeaway regime. Uh, can you talk us a bit through the takeaway regime with opioid substitution therapy and maybe discuss some of the, the contraindications and your approach to prescribing safely and using this as a harm reduction measure? Yeah, takeaways is is a fraught conversation often with patients because every patient wants as many takeaways as possible. Nobody wants to go to the pharmacy every day to pick up their drugs. And I have a lot of sympathy for that because it is a real, sometimes it is a real pain in the neck having to go to the same pharmacist day in, day out. But takeaway medication is not an automatic right. 
there has to be an assessment of need and there has to be an assessment of risk. And there are various ways that the various uh, states in Australia apply that risk assessment. But I, I would just like to highlight what, in my opinion, are some of the absolute reasons why you cannot give out takeaways because the risks are just too high. So let's just think about what, what happens. So if you divert methadone, you're potentially exposing drug-naive patients to, to methadone, to illicit methadone, and you're potentially exposing children to accidental methadone ingestion because it's a, it's a green clear liquid. It looks like lemon, it looks like lime cordial. And children have died as a result of access to unsupervised methadone. You know, it has happened. There have been deaths. So in my opinion, the absolute contraindications are a lack of safe storage, a previous history of suicide or significant self-harm within the last three months, previous history of overdose within the last three months, or evidence of diversion. So I would, all, I would say to that that using on top is not necessarily an absolute contraindication. So it's, a, it's, it's important to understand why are people using on top? Because, you know, are they using on top because they're not controlled? Or are they using on top because, they're, because of some unmet psychosocial need? You know, the, these are the issues. So actually, you know, one of my approaches to someone using on top would be actually increase the dose of methadone. I wouldn't give them necessarily more takeaways, but I could certainly increase the dose of the methadone. Um, but it's an interesting conversation. And I suppose the other thing to mention is that if you really are worried about having takeaway discussions, maybe then the, the, the next uh, option would be long-acting injectable buprenorphine. Absolutely. What's your, what's your take on, uh, on the assessment of takeaway risk? I think my risk assessment is very similar to yours. Um, and those contraindications you measured would be similar to, to what I viewed with you as an absolute contraindication. Previous risk of overdose, previous suicide attempt in the, in the recent past, um, and lack of ability to store the medication, all, all red flags. Because as you mentioned, we have to be sure that the patient can not only take the medication safely, but make sure no one else can take the medication. So if we can't guarantee that, then we are kind of failing at the baseline principle of harm reduction, which is trying to minimize harm to the patient, but also trying to minimize harm to society. And if we can't meet those criteria, then takeaways, unfortunately, are, are, are not really available until some of those barriers can be met. So it is important that although we are all uh, empathetic towards our patients and it is a hassle going to the pharmacy every day, and of course, we want our patients to be stable on opioid substitution therapy, uh, we have to make sure that the medication is being used as intended and that there is no risk of harm to the patient or other people. So in, in summary, I, I agree with, with everything that you've said about, about your, your view on takeaways. Now, uh, an mm. another topic to, to try and think about as well is from a harm reduction point of view, reducing the risks of, of intravenous drug use. So we've talked about opioid substitution therapy. Um, what's your view about needle exchanges and, and the benefits of, of needle exchanges um, with regards to, to people who inject drugs? So this is a fascinating topic. Um, I, was, I graduated in, uh, from Belfast in the United Kingdom. 
And just when I was a junior doctor many years ago, the the the, the injecting of the, the, the HIV hepatitis pandemic was beginning to hit Scotland. And two cities in Scotland were kind of took two opposing views. One took the view that they're going to give out free works, you know, free needles, free syringes. The other one said, oh, no, no, we're not going to condone, you know, drug taking behavior at all. We're going to, it's a criminal justice issue and we're not going to facilitate drug use. One city had practically zero HIV and hepatitis C amongst their population of drug using clients, whereas the other city had significant rates. So that's, that was the first kind of epidemiological evidence to suggest that, that, that needle syringe programs are very, very effective. They're very, very cost effective at preventing the transmission of bloodborne viruses. They, they, you know, the, if you have a clean needle, you don't knacker your vein, you don't cause cellulitis, you don't transmit any number of polymicrobial substances into your, into your body, you don't get polymicrobial uh, cellulitis or bacteremia, and you don't get HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. These infections cost millions of dollars, billions of dollars a year to treat. So, you know, these are significant benefits to patients. And you've got to bear in mind that catching HIV is, at, at the moment, catching HIV is a long, is a lifelong infection. It's a chronic disease. It's a lifelong infection. Catching hepatitis B at this moment in time is a chronic disease, which requires at the very least immunosurveillance lifelong. Up till recently, up till 2016, hepatitis C was, was a lifelong infection and almost a death sentence, you know, because of the risk of conversion to uh, cirrhosis and, and uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. Or we can, but we can now treat, thankfully, we can now treat hepatitis C with a course of eight to 12 weeks of medications. But that was only recently. And, and to, 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 to its credit, the Australian government has actually put billions of dollars into treating hepatitis C. But imagine a world where no one had hepatitis C because everyone had access to clean needles. So, you know, they, they are very, very cost effective. The, 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 um, the economic argument is, is significantly in favor for the use of needle syringe programs, but there's various sources which, which quote various figures in terms of just how cost effective uh, needle syringe programs are. Would you, would you be able to comment on that? They are. And also, I think the, the thing to take into account is not so much the actual costs of the needles and syringes, but as you mentioned, the, the decreased risk of bloodborne viruses and the treatment of bloodborne viruses as well. Because as you mentioned, mm. HIV and hepatitis B are chronic diseases that are manageable, but require lifelong either surveillance or lifelong treatment. Hepatitis C is a treatable condition, but the course of treatment is around $60,000 per person, sometimes a bit more, sometimes a bit less. And if we're talking about the cost of a syringe and needles, where we're talking really cents per syringe and per needle, yeah. one could the economic yeah. argument doesn't even um, uh, doesn't even factor in for me because treating someone for a illness that can be prevented by giving the the person a, a syringe and a needle versus sixty thousand dollars worth of uh, treatment for, say, hepatitis C, it's unlikely we'll need to spend $60,000 for the lifetime of this person providing a syringe or a needle. So, uh, yes, the economic, if we're just talking pure economics, it's a no-brainer, no-brainer for me. 
Um, so that's that's the kind that's the kind of way I rationalise it anyway, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that's pretty similar to, to mm-hmm. your approach as well, Fergal. Yeah, I mean that that's a really useful figure that you've said is that that sixty thousand dollars for a course of treatment for hepatitis C. I mean that's the current market rate in Australia, but it varies country to country. But you know there are various estimates of the cost effectiveness, and and I've heard various statements from various sources. I've heard. In Australia, it was estimated that for, that, that, uh, for every dollar spent on a needle syringe program, it saved $29. Uh, in the States, they, they, the National Institute of Drugs and Addiction, um, NIDA, Drug Abuse and Addiction, um, they estimate that, that uh, any dollar spent on any kind of drug treatment saves at least $4. But then if you start factoring into the savings in the criminal justice system as well as health system, then it saves seven dollars, and that's a, probably a conservative figure. So you know, the bottom line is prevention is better than cure, and prevention is cheaper than cure. Absolutely. And also, when we talk about harm reduction, we've t- we've touched briefly on bloodborne viruses, but we also need to talk about a few other things as well. And I'll just bundle them into to one section just to, for ease of kind of explanation. But I would kind of call it the preventative aspect, and by that I mean mental health sexual health and, and smoking. So we know that people who inject drugs have high comorbidity with mental health, have increased risk of developing a sexually transmitted infection and have higher rates of smoking. So I think our duty as, as doctors and health practitioners is to screen our patients adequately for signs of mental illness or disease, signs of um, sexual infections or screening for STIs, and also talk to, to patients about smoking cessation interventions as well, because we do know that the more times uh, a health practitioner broaches the issue with a patient, especially with regards to smoking, the more likely a patient is to actually take on board some of the things that, that we're talking about. W- would you say that those are, those are fair statements, Virgil? Uh, absolutely. And this is the, the, the paradox in our practice, right? Society at large takes a very laissez-faire attitude to smoking, right? It's not illegal to smoke. It's gra- Thankfully, it's gradually becoming more and more difficult to smoke. But at this moment in time, it is not illegal to smoke. But smoking is more addictive than heroin. We know that. And smoking on a, on a global la- la- level creates more problems than heroin. Yet we can smoke, and you know, amongst uh, amongst uh, addiction medicine and GPs who treat uh, patients with addiction issues, we all focus on getting people off the heroin because that's the scourge of society. But we ignore smoking; we let them smoke. Yes, you know. So you know, it, it's so important to, to really emphasize the need for adequate smoking cessation amongst our amongst our, our clients. And the other thing is, I think there are some. There's some work understanding the genetic predisposition to smoking and that's greater in patients with mental health disorders and greater in patients with substance use disorders in general. So I really urge uh, everyone to never forget about smoking cessation advice. And as you say, simply having the conversation, that brief intervention can set someone on the right path towards not only being abstinent from heroin, but also abstinent from cigarettes. Yes, absolutely. One of the last topics I wanted to talk about, Fergal, was dental care in particular with patients who inject drugs and we know this is a big issue 
Would you care to talk in a bit more detail about the issues with regards Mm -hmm. to dental caries and overall poor dentition in in people who inject drugs? Yeah, so uh, originally uh, methadone had sugar in it. And so there was this idea that methadone replacement therapy rots teeth. Quite rightly, it did because it did, it um, does have sugar or did have sugar in it. And then we've now got sugar-free methadone. But it's also important to realize that any opioid, including methadone and including heroin, any opioid will reduce saliva production in the mouth. And if you reduce saliva production, you increase your risk of dental caries, to, you know, rotten teeth. And so it's very common for patients who have got substance use disorders and or who are treated with methadone to have poor dentition. Now, the poor dentition in and of itself is not a reason to avoid methadone substitution therapy. It simply is a hallmark of the disease and it should be treated. And, and you know, dental care should be part of a harm reduction strategy. The only problem is that, at least in Australia, I mean, even I balk at the cost of my dental care. It's expensive and it's not, you know, Medicare-funded dentistry in the community. It's very difficult to find. I, I don't know. Have you had any luck finding a community uh, dentist? No, is, is, is the short answer. It, it, is, it is supremely <laughs> difficult to, to manage complex dental yeah. issues in the community at a, a price that is suitable for, for some of our patients who are really on, on the downside of advantage and are not really able yeah. to afford any of the um, the complex dental care that they may need. So it is a problem. I actually think that dental caries is probably the hallmark of a significant class distinction within Australia. If you want to see what socioeconomic group the patient comes from, look at their teeth. That's a, that's a very profound statement and actually quite a true statement. It It, it is... It is probably one of one of the markers of, of the social determinants of the health and it really does show where on um i guess the 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 social paradigm one 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 does exist when when you look at dental hygiene now a topic that we mm. have not really touched on today and this is quite deliberately is supervised injecting and supervised injecting rooms and that is because it is a big topic and we will be doing a dedicated episode of cracking addiction on supervised injecting rooms as well so In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've talked about harm reduction in all its guises and how harm reduction decreases the risk of overdose and decreases mortality. Thanks for your attention uh, on the episode of Cracking Addiction today and bye for now.